Okay. Um, everybody has a source sheet? Excellent. Um, okay, so practical hilchot kibud avaim. Starting, I guess, with a you know, with a complaint about the way I think that we run it educationally in our community, that we tend to teach hilchot kibud avaim to children, and hilchot kibud avaim is at least as important for parents. And like all mitzvot, it doesn't apply to underage children; it only applies to adults. Um, and so. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Kress knows, right, that you know, it's one of my ongoing complaint things in high school that we should always teach high school in a way that grows with the students, as opposed to teaching them exactly where they are. And I think Kibbutz Avaim is the is the you know is the the lead example of that. We shouldn't be teaching Kibbutz Avaim for teenagers to act as teenagers. We should be, at mo- at best, we should be teaching Kibbutz Avaim to tell them how to behave as parents when they have teenagers. Um, right, so I'm going to set that out as agenda number one. So that's the the task, and right? I'm going to try to teach Hilchot Kibbutz Avaim in a sense to myself as a member of a sandwich of a sandwich generation. My father should live and be well is in his 90s. Uh, I have married children. I have a teenage child. Uh, I have a grandchild now. It's very 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 young, right? So I have all the I have all those uh, all those varieties. So I need to learn it for myself, and I want to set out. Um, what I hope is a different way of looking at it because I think it is too often taught only from, uh, only from one perspective and not as something which you will need to relate to in different ways as you go through life and often you have to relate to from both, from both perspectives simultaneously. Um, what I want to do tonight is just set out um, what I think are three distinct conceptual frameworks for thinking about all the other issues. In the, in the following two weeks, we're going to address um, two of those kinds of issues more directly, and there are sources that will interpenetrate, which I will perhaps raise tonight, and then we'll actually see in the following weeks, and you're welcome to uh, interject with practical questions, which I may answer or just put off to another, to another week, but it's good for me to have, it's good for me to have uh, questions to think about in, um, in, pre- in preceding in uh, the following weeks. Right? So the next two weeks, we're going to talk about values conflicts, uh, which I think is... Um, Really, like, I, like I'm not aware of a halachic treatment that frames the issue that way. Like, what happens if you have different values than your parents or, or different values than your children? How does, that, how does that play out in the way in which you're supposed to treat each other? Um, and in the third week, we'll talk about an issue which is, which is, uh, there, is there are a lot of treatments are how you handle relationships that are abusive. Um, and I think you can, you know, we're starting to develop to a much more serious treatment a re- relationship to that, both because we have a more serious appreciation of mental health issues, but also I think we're starting to get a broader sense of societal trends. There's a powerful and scary article in The Atlantic about the degree of alienation, uh, almost always initiated by children uh, from parents, and that's you know, something that's just happening way too often. Uh, and yet, I think an appreciation of the extent to which um, relationships with parents can be unhealthy for children and, that ch- right, and how we balance that. So we'll talk about that in the... Um, in the in the third week, all right. So I have a I have a sort of my, you know a, a statement of my own perspective on the education on the first page. And I want to move to the bottom because I think there are it's premise that halacha is not an unchanging framework in practice. Whether you want to claim that you can claim that there's a theoretical structure of halacha that is un- unchanging, but the practical um, impl- implementation of halacha has to be responsive to social expectations. So I want to just set out a list of ways in which Hilchot Kibbut Avaim are complicated by, in new ways by um, phenomena that I think have reached greater intensity in the 21st century. Um, so one of them is long-term aging in an environment um, where, um, where I th- which I think you know, partially for good or for, right, for Long, longer life is often accompanied with diminished mental uh, capacity in our, our in our day, and as there are more and more elderly, it has sort of shifted the perspective from elderly as wise to elderly as befuddled as your standard as your standard image, and that changes it right. That just changes the whole nature of a society, um, right? From a society where you presume that your job is to make meaning out of the right out of the statements of your of your elderly to a job where where you tolerate them. That's the best you, that's the best they can expect. Right, that's the way you frame it. And we all understand that there are extreme versions of, of um, taking elderly parents and attributing wisdom to them, which they don't actually have. 
you could read the old Doonesburys about uh, about how you know, how the how the you know, satire of how the Chinese communists treated Mao at the end of his life. Um, but but just like you asked me, like what your what your standard image of the elderly person in America is is not as the wise person you go to his count you go to for counsel, and, and that could be a function. I'm suggesting that as a practical cause, which is uh, which is increased life, just meaning that it's more likely that people will live for a long time um, with conditions such as advanced Alzheimer's. But it could also be just a shift in social attitude towards them. I will mention, as I usually do in this context, that there's a film called Hiding and Seeking, which perhaps some of you have seen. Uh, it's a Menachem Down film about taking his children. Well, he realizes that his father is a Holocaust survivor who was saved by, um, by a Polish family. And his children in yeshiva are not a, right, have attitudes towards non-Jews that he thinks uh, are immoral, based on whether that they're only there because of the, because of this Polish family that saved them. And he brings them back to Poland. But to me, the most powerful part of the film is the way the Polish family treats their elderly. That the teenagers who saved his father are now in their 80s, and their and the family's life is built around them, and they are happy, and functional, and it's just an incredible thing. You know, that to me is the you know, it, it was terrifying, Lister. Um, right, that that was right. That the um, that in the film about Orthodox Jews, right, the right the Catholic family was the absolute model of Hilchot Kibbutz and we could talk in other contexts about how Chazal already have a notion of this, specifically about Rome, and how that's complicated in, in Chazal in the purpose of Daven Benetina. But we should, but I'm just naming it for me in that film. If I had to pick a model of Hilchot Kibbutz I have seen many beautiful things in my own family, in my own community. Uh, that film just intimidates me. Um, okay. So that's one possibility. Second possibility is the increasing awareness of abuse. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that there are increasing rates because we have no way of knowing. Right? But there's certainly increasing awareness. Right? People are aware of the possibility that children are being abused by parents. Children are aware of the possibility and they have a word for it, abuse. And that puts breaks on a relationship that don't exist uh, otherwise. It makes you question things. You wouldn't, right? It makes you understand that there's a need to protect yourself and to protect others in a way you might not have in a society where, the, you're, where you don't have consciousness of that, regardless of what the actual rates are, which I can't tell you anything about. I think the prevalence of divorce obviously affects, um, affects relationships, um, not just because you have uh, absentee parents. Interesting question whether you have more absentee parents with the prevalence of divorce than you had previously, or you just had people who didn't get divorced, but, you know, but one party was away much of the time. Um, but the prevalence of divorce just means that parents are less presumptively permanent presences in your presences in your life, and that parents are more likely to to turn children against the other parent than to see themselves as engaged in a collective endeavor. Um, I think that's I think that has to be acknowledged. Um, I think there's a general notion that um, because. We live in a society which has undergone radical ethical shifts and also practical shifts. So even if you have all the wisdom you had 50 years ago, you may not be wise. In, right, and not just because people are younger, right, the famous Mark Twain line, right, you know, that when I was, uh, when I was um, 20, you know, my father, my father knew nothing. And when I was 50, I was astonished at how much my father had learned in the intervening 30 years. Um, but, the, right, but just because you know, my father was a professor of electrical engineering, and there are all sorts of gadgets that his, right, that his um, single-digit grandchildren can handle that he can't. Right? And that's his specialty. Right? So, right, so the radical shift, radical shift just means that, the, wisdom, that the, right, the, the knowledge of how to do things doesn't work. And then you have just radical ethical shifts on, to, you know, on tolerance issues in terms of uh, sexuality, sexual orientation, racism, all sorts of things where people who were really good people in their society 50 years ago uh, as opposed to looking at them as beacons of wisdom, we look at them as ethically outdated. All right, and that also changes the way, right? Change, right changes the way that uh, people look at them. I mean, if you know, it'd be, and it's really rapid if they have to pull off real wisdom and also admit that they changed radically. Right, right, right. That's all. That's also a really hard thing. Um, I think that the separation of reproduction and sexuality and social parenthood. Um, again, this is not a commentary on whether it's desirable or not. It's a description. Right? We, have, we live in a society where parents are often not the biological parents. Right? The social parents are not the biological parents. Uh, and in which we no longer assume as a society that parents are biological male, biological mother, right? Combine, right? combining biologically to produce children. And because, right? and because of increasing acceptance of, um, 
of single-sex marriage, which then leads to, which then leads to, but they have children, right? So the whole notion of parentage as being in a given framework just isn't there anymore. And many things are much harder to sustain when the givens are, right? Many things are sustained by defaults. And when the defaults, um, when the defaults corrode, and, you can no, and it's not, no longer obvious to you what's going on, right? you have to explain it. So many things become really hard to sustain because it's hard to explain them. And right, that's a much broader conversation about how, how assumptions in a society change and things that were obvious in one society become unintelligible uh, to another. Uh, I think it is true, although this is certainly not unique to our generation, it's one that, you know, that's, that's has, that is certainly in Jewish history happens quite often, just geographic distance. Uh, right? People don't live next to each other. Right? That has happened often with immigration, and it's happening without immigration in, right, in the United States. People just live apart. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe everyone lives in New York except for us. <laughs> uh, right? I don't, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. Um, there is an increasing presumption and recognition of individual autonomy as a value, right? that people are supposed to be, right? this is a, you know, a, a, a trope right in, there in philosophy and biblical interpretation. Right? Professor Levinson famously says that the, the, I, the biblical I is the family, uh, right? whereas we think of the I as the individual. Um, and Charles Taylor has written about you know, how autonomy is a primary modern value. And there I, you know, stand, I, stand for you, I stand before you as someone very, very modern. I see autonomy as a primary value. You can read the wonderful book out on the table out there, and you'll see autonomy is all the way through it, right? Almost every chapter it is an, endor- right? it's an endorsement of autonomy. But I have to recognize that's not, you know, that, that, and I get that directly from Rabbi Soloveitchik, but it's a 20th century post-phenomenon to see autonomy explicitly as, you know, that individually, autonomy as that kind of value. And then last, I think we just have to say the word Freud. Right? Freud makes relations with parents harder. Uh, right, in, all sorts of, in, a, in all sorts of ways. So when we talk about how to construct the Chok right, we have to recognize that we live in an environment that is conditioned by all these things. And that means that something that I would have told you to do 120 years ago will generate very different reactions now. And therefore, if I, right, therefore it probably doesn't make sense to tell you to do the same thing, right, or even necessarily to use the identical conceptual framework that I would have said 100 years ago. Um, so the way I frame it is that we have to, you have to set out both human and halachic goals. What kind of society do I want to, right, do I want to construct? What role do I want halacha to play in that society? Um, and I think you have to, you have to, you know, what, what, what presumption am I making about the, the way and the degree to which people will, cons- will use halacha in that, in that society? Do I want people to be uh, calling me up before every conversation they have with their parents or children? To, right, to, ask, to ask me what they should say so I can pass it for them? Probably not. Right? I want people to live in a, natural, in, in a certain kind of natural framework. Do I want people to set up environments where halakha is largely irrelevant? Let's say I could declare that all parents should tell their children at their bar mitzvah, I hereby forgive all obligations of kavod that you owe to me. And now nothing halakhic is going to happen in terms of kavod, perhaps. Is that what I want? Maybe. Uh, right, so, right, so I have to figure out like, what, what, is the, what are the relationships I want. I think it's worth thinking about whether the relationships I want are the ones that fulfill the aspirations of the broader society we, in, or, we are in or that compel us to be consciously countercultural. Right? That in, in Orthodox Judaism or in Judaism, whatever, whatever your constituency is, we want relationships between children and parents to be different than the ones that are, val- than the ones that are valorized by general society. Or do I want them to be the same? Uh, right? And that itself is, you know, in many ways, a fairly new question because we lived in a, you know, before that we lived in a society where we basically assumed we have shared values. And that's true in many issues. But I think that's true here as well. Okay, so we need human goals, we need halachic goals. Um, this week, really, we're just going to set the framework, although you are um, more than welcome to, uh, to challenge at any stage. So uh, I think I framed it as love and obedience. So let's start with, um, you know, just to get a things backwards, how many of you think that there is a halachic obligation to love your parents? Yes, sir, Aaron Krenz. So you have to love everybody. So you have to love your parents like you love everybody. Okay, so you have to love your parents like you love every Jew, right? assuming your parents are Jewish. Um, but nothing special. Do you think that? There's nothing special? 
Okay, right. So it's always an interesting question to you know whether you think that uh, whether you think that right. And if you think that there's no mitzvah to love your parents, do you, th- do you think that's because uh, you, here? Do you think that's because um, the Torah cannot compel you to love people? And then we get into the whole dispute about whether the rahatul recha kamocha actually requires an internal condition and emotion, or just requires you to behave behave a certain way. Then we have to ask our question: So what are the ways you behave towards people you love? And can we mandate that towards parents? Um, right, even if we don't mandate the emotion, or can we mandate emotions? Um, and the second question asked is obedience. So how many of you think that obedience is part of Kibbutz Avayim? Your parents tell you to do something that you have a mitzvah to do it. Yes, sir. Okay, right, so we friend, right? So, okay, maybe parents, if you have a, a, a prima facie, right, a default setting or a rebuttable presumption, that if your parents tell you to do something, you have to do it. Akiva, what did you want to say? I was just raising my hand to say yes, I think. I think so, too. Okay. Um, what about you, David? No, I, well, I remember one of my favorite talks was uh, about uh, fearing your following, uh, fearing, right? And it says, Lo omer b'makomo v'lo... Yoshe v'komo, yeah. The we'll get there. So, and you shouldn't uh, contradict him. What he, what he has to say. So, and then he goes into uh, you know explaining that his way. But um, yeah, there's a there's a, a, some kind of Mishnahic thing about. Okay, question. good. We'll get there. I think it's on page uh, page five. I think. <laughs> uh, good. Okay. Uh, interesting. Right. So we have two children who think that there's an obligation and no parents willing to say it really straightforwardly yet that there's an obligation uh, for children to obey. That's probably the way it should be. Uh, right? It's probably a best case scenario. If all the, um, but it gets hard if you're the same person. You know, I have an obligation to obey, my pa- to, to obey my father, but my children don't have an obligation to obey me. That's a difficult, uh, that's a difficult thing to pull off in your head. Um, the hobgoblins of my little mind are, are objecting very strongly to that lack of consistency. Um, okay, so I gave you on page th- on page two an attempt at a sort of comprehensive list of all the mitzvot in the Torah about how relating to relating to obligations of children towards parents. So we'll note right we have twice in the Aserta de Brot, we have uh, we have kabed. So the question is like, what does kabed mean? Does kabed include love or obedience? Uh, right, literally kabed means to make heavy. Right? Or we can we can make that sound a little bit better and more useful if we say it in Latin and say it's to give gravitas, uh, right? That makes it sound right to right to give your parents weight. Okay, so what does that mean to give your parents weight? To consider their positions before acting against them. Right? It matters to me what my parents say. Um, I, I went, um, okay, right, so that's right. We usually translate kabet as honor or dignify, but it's not clear that's right. That goes up twice. There's a passage in Mishle, the Gemara quotes, which says, kabet tashem mehoncha, which points out that sometimes the kabet just means to give people stuff. just means to give them stuff. Right, uh, right so I think, right, think of that. Gemara draws the comparison, uh, comparison uh, explicitly. And we have this other phrase of ishi movi aviv tira'u, so yirah, and which shows up it both as as ira and ira and mora in um, in biblical Hebrew, and not entirely clear whether the different conjugations make a difference. Um, so I think you all know that yirah can mean fear, and yirah can mean something like awe or reverence. And you can quote uh, you can quote verses uh, about God both ways. So that doesn't give us so much definition either. You know, does. Um, it, they can both include obedience, but they include it in very different ways if you obey out of fear and you obey out of reverence. Um, and, the, you know, there's a whole challenge as to whether you can both fear and love at the same time. Is that actually a, a consistent, consistent emotion? Is it implicit in it? Certain kinds of reverence, in my experience with my teachers, come with something I would describe as love. Uh, and others don't. I think that's an, right. That's a, that's a, that's an open challenge. Okay. Then you have prohibitions against striking and cursing, um, and those are right. Those are capital crimes in theory. So those seem to be like intense versions, uh, right? Both both love and uh, both right. Sorry, both kibud and yirah 
are framed as positive commandments, although interestingly all the examples of Yirah are going to be, neg- be things not to do, but they're framed as positive commandments. Maimonides is going to list them in his positive commandments. Uh, whereas, right, he, these are explicit negatives. Don't strike your parents, right, halakhically don't strike your parents in such a way that it draws blood. Uh, right, don't curse your parents, and to curse is useful because likhalel is the extreme form of to make light. Right, so it sounds like it sounds it sounds like from the text that there is a focus on this category of adding to your parents, uh, adding to your parents' weight and gravitas. Although we also have to ask the question: Is that focused on you, or is it focused on the way they are perceived by others? Are you supposed to add gravitas to your parents' social role, or to the way right, or to treat them? yourself that way. Because it's possible to help your parents socially without um, in any way right, having it affect the way you treat them actually or treat them differently in your own life than you treat them publicly. And the last one, which is verse 8, which uh, is really cited too rarely, but I think actually plays a more important halakhic role than already given, is arur makleh. So this actually, right, we reverse, right, reverse the curse, right, 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 as opposed to the prohibition being against cursing your parents, it's cursed is the person who does this to their parents. And the verb uses is makleh, which is the non-intensive mikaleo. Right, so we have an additional prohibition, which is making your parents light, even when it doesn't mean making them as light as, uh, as, light as cursing them. Uh, right, that's, that's a, uh, that's, you know, that creates all sorts of space for reintroducing kibbut ava'im in areas where we could define it out of all the other categories. And that, I think, is a, is a very important um, way of doing it, and you can see that I, I use it particularly the way that there the Natalis Fihud in Berlin, the Nesiv, uses that to slip something back in. Uh, right? The parade example I often talk about is whether, whether parents have a say in, um, in whom uh, children can marry, and the, the halakha all the way through is no, but one of the reasons given that, um, the standard reason really given as to why parents have no say is a claim that kibbut avayim should be limited to things in which the parents have a real interest. And the Nitzvah just comes along and says, really? Parents' social standing is dramatically affected by whom their children marry, not to mention their quality of life. And so, you're, right, so you've been trying to defend individual autonomy and marriage all this time, but your argument goes too far. Uh, right? Then we have all sorts of conversations about what really happens with the, with the uh, patriarchs. Uh, right? you know, does, right? does, you know, Avram choosing Yitzchak's son, Yitzchak, be, right? Yitzchak being upset about it, whom Esau marries, is that illegitimate? Right? He really should have just let Esau marry whoever he wants. Right? There, there are all sorts of interesting biblical framings. Okay, but what we have overall is, right, we have, right, if we're looking for, for verbs, we have kibud, yirah, makeh, mikalel, and makleh. None of them explicitly mean love or obedience. Right? We have to construct them in such a way as to involve love or obedience. Here's what the Ramam says. Okay, and the Ramam writes a, uh, this is a famous response of the Ramam. It's written to Rabbi Ovadia Hager, the right, Ravadi the convert, who is being treated very badly by people in, uh, in his society. And the Ramam says the following. Know that the obligation the Torah has obligated us regarding converts is great. Regarding father and mother, we have been commanded to honor and revere, and regarding prophets to obey, and it is possible to honor, revere, and obey someone that you don't love. There is an obligation to love converts, the Raman says, and there's an obligation to obey prophets, and neither of those are obligations towards parents. I think that's about as clear as you can get. Right? The Ramam just right, flat out excludes love and obedience. Right? Love and obedience are things that you are, right, are obligations you have towards other people. Okay. Um, so how do you react to that? Even though no one said love and obedience really were like they're, you know, they were part of uh, were part of Kibbutz Abba Abel, all of a sudden there seems to be this shock that someone else actually said that. Uh, not least the Rambam. I encourage reading it many times, but it's not going to change. It's still going to say it. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's still going to say it. No matter how many times you read it, the Rambam is still going to say it. But we could say that he's saying it in a specific rhetorical context. His interest is not parents. His interest is converts. And he's just trying to write, so maybe he doesn't really mean it. Right, that's, I think you could say that. But I think it's easier to say that he has a really clear conception. 
And its conception of what you have to do for parents does not include love or obedience, which doesn't mean that love and obedience aren't good things. They're just not mitzvahs. Okay, why does Ramam say this? So the truth is, Ramam says some really quite astonishingly shocking things about Kilchus Kibbutz Avayim. I'm going to war- warn you up front um, that Ram, you know, that it's one of those areas where people like to teach the halachic sections of the Ramam and not think so much about the, the times that he that he that he that he wanders off the halachic, um, the pure halachic level. So here's what the Ramam right. So in the in the guide for the perplexed, now you could also point out that um, you know that I seem to be cheating because I'm quoting right. The Ramam has Hilchot Kibbutz Avayim in the Mishnah Torah, and I'm deliberately teaching you everything else the Ramam said before we get to the Mishnah Torah, because I'm going to claim that you, that the Mishnah Torah, that it's too easy to understand the Mishnah Torah in categories you already believe, and so it's better, right, so it's, pedagogically I am trying to approach the Ramam through places where he is, where he is clearly different than what you expect, and then see whether he, you think he changed his mind, or whether this is actually is, helps you understand what he says in the Mishnah Torah. So in the Guide to the Perplexed, Rama says that the reason we have a prohibition against striking or cursing parents is because of the great brazenness this involves, the rule of ha'azut shi'ishbo. Uh, the, same from, the Guide to the Perplexed is written in Arabic, of course, so I can't give you the original, but I suspect the original Arabic was something like it's chutzpidik. Striking your parents is chutzpidik. Why is chutzpah bad? With apologies to Professor Dershowitz. Uh, so he tells you, because it diminishes the order of the household, which is the first part of the state. So Rama has a very, you know, very clear hierarchical social vision, and the state has to be in order. And in order for the state to be in order, the family first has to be in order. And you don't want the hierarchy of the, of the family disrupted, because if the hierarchy of the family is disrupted, then the hierarchy of the state is disrupted. Okay, right, so that's... Uh, that's a, you know, a really not American modern vision of what is going on. And it has nothing to do with the individual child and parent. And therefore, it has nothing to do with love. So it's not about, it's not about, it's not about what your relationship with your parents should be. It's about how society can function. Society can function with, certain def- with default settings of authority. And the interesting question then, then is, why does he exclude obedience? Right, if you're talking about social order, so shouldn't right? You would expect right? You you can understand why love is missing, but it's really hard to understand why obedience is missing because they would think that that's what social order depends on, right? Okay, so let's go on. Uh, I think we'll get to David's source here. So, source number four, right? We have a Gemara that um, defines kibud and yirah. And we're going to take this as a given, although I should point out that the Rambam doesn't quote, the, doesn't say he's quoting the Gemara in his Sifri HaMitzvot. He says he's quoting the Midrashah Halakha, which are very similar, but not quite identical. And when the Rambam uses sources other than the Gemara, it, it could be that he's doing that on purpose. So I, I, I don't know that I can commit to the proposition that the Rambam here is, um, the Rambam is going to have to take this Gemara, but I think that I can put the interpretations in the Gemara, which we should know anyway, because eventually everybody's going to have to account for it. I think I can put things into that will make you understand the options that are in front of the Rambam, and then the options for understanding the Rambam. So here's what the Rambam says. What is, what is, Mora, what is Mora and what is Kibud? Mora is, and this is David's line, right? Not standing in their place, sitting in their place, contradicting their words, or weighing in on their arguments, although the verb here is machria. So even though machria does literally mean wait, because to be machria literally is to make is to make bow, and the image you have is a scale, and the heavier thing makes the right makes that side bow. So that's the machria is to right is to weigh in on one side, um, but it's not the same verbs as lechabed, as lechabed and lechalel. Okay, um, right. So that's what that's what mora is defined. Whereas kibbut is defined as providing food and drink, dressing and covering, escorting in and out. Then the Gemara says, okay, but who pays for these obligations? And Rabbi Yehuda says that the expenses of kibbut Ava'im come from the child. And then Rabbi Nassim says the expenses of kibbut Ava'im come from the parents. Children don't have to pay for kibbut Ava'im. And then the Gemara says, which is taken, yeah, I think, um, yeah, if I'm reading it literarily, it's a little bit funny, right? There's a dispute, right? The Gemara says that the rabbis ruled that it comes from the parents, but they can't, they, they forgot whether they ruled that, whether it was the son or the, or the parent who asked the question. 
And you understand the psak that the parents pay for it is a very different psak if you give it to the children than if you give it to the parents. But we're going to tra- take it straight and assume that right, the way everyone subsequently has, uh, unchallenged halacha, that children that the expenses of kibbutz avaim are borne by the parents. So then, what does it mean that you provide food and drink if parents pay? So I think that there are two possible meanings of everything in this uh, in this text. One is that we're talking about the way I usually frame it is is there there are um, substantive and formal obligations. A substantive obligation is that you have to make sure your parents have food. A formal obligation is that you have to serve your parents food. Now, if your parents have to, if your if your parents are paying for the food, so it doesn't make sense to say that your obligation is to provide them with the food. Then your obligation must be to serve. And by the same notion, right? So to stand to stand in your parents' place can mean that there should be a chair at the table which is your tray, there are physical chairs, and those physical chairs perhaps are given particular GPS locations, and your children should not, either should not sit in that chair, or they should not sit in the, G, in the GPS location at which your chair normally is. Right? That's one way of understanding, of understanding low and maybe come out. The other possibility is that you should not fill your parents' social place. Right? That's a very different way of understanding it. When we say that you don't contradict your parents' words, does that mean that you have to agree with them? Or does that mean that in public, right? Or that, or does it mean, or does it mean, as the Gemara says about your teachers, that when you disagree with your parents, you have to say, "Didn't you teach me?" Everyone knows what that means. Everyone knows you're disagreeing, but you have to do it in a way that shows social deference. Okay, so you have right, so you have two fundamental ways of understanding kibbutz avayim. One is that talking about substantive obligations. The other is talking about social obligations to your parents. And now we can say, aha, and Maimonides thinks that the framework for Ilkhot Kibbut Ava'im is the sustaining of social roles. And therefore, I want to argue that the Rambam will, right, that when the Rambam quotes all, right, quotes all these things, he's always going to be talking about them as social roles and not, as, not about substantive things. And the Rambam Ilkhot Kibbut Ava'im is about setting up a, a, a for, formal relationship between children and parents in the way in which they behave towards each other. And it has no interest in emotions. And it has no real interest in outcomes either. It's just, interest, right, it's just interested in, in sustaining the forms so that society can sustain itself. So now if we look at the Ramana Sifre HaMitzvot, you'll see that he defines Yira in a way which we find nowadays quite terrifying. Finds Yira is you have to behave with them as with someone whom one is afraid will punish one like the king and act with them like one does with those of whom one is terrified and afraid of lest they cause something one despises to happen to the one. He doesn't say that your parents can do these things to you. He doesn't, say, or he doesn't even say that you have to let your parents do these things to you. He just says that you have to behave towards them the way you would if they had that power. And that's the way he frames it, right? You act as if you are in terror. Yes, David. I, I just want to support what you said earlier about the Rambam. Uh, and not necessarily saying that you can't disagree with them. You just have to support the... the yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, again, the question is, of course, the Rambam, yeah. the Rambam says, Avi mori min ha-osmin, ba'ani min ha-matirin. Talking about something, who knows why. But, so he quotes his father, Avi Mori, and then he says, I disagree with him. Yeah, so that's right. So it could be that as long as he said Mori, that's enough. Right? It could be, you know, there, there are people who interpret all of Hilchot Kibbutz as really just being about how to behave in the Beit Medrash with your parents, and people who think that how to behave in the Beit Medrash with your parents is the exception, of course, because that's where everything, right? That's where everything, right? So that, right, that's a really interesting question as to what, what you think real life is. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to point out right, that although the Ramam rarely disambiguates this question, but if you take a look at page 5 of the underlined line, when the Ramam talks about, right, the Ramam says, Motsi, right, so remember that the, the positive things of kibud are machilu mashkeh, food and drink, um, right, then you have malbishu mechaseh, you cover and you, right, you dress and you cover, same issues, you have to provide them with clothing or do you have to serve as their, I think now it's Downton Abbey, we say valet, right? 
Um, right? And then, right, does that mean that you, um, that you make sure that they have rides, or does that mean that you escort them? So the Ramam says, after he says, machnis you bring them in and out, he says, and you serve them in all the ways that personal servants serve their master. Which makes it clear he's talking about, right, he's talking about the social role. He's not talking about the actual, right, the, the actual provisions. Um, now, when the Ramah, right, he, and he also says, right, you stand before them in the way you stand in front of your, uh, you stand in front of probably your teacher, although there's always the ambiguity when you say, does he mean your teacher or does he mean your master? And is he, is he using a slavery metaphor is he, or is he using an educational metaphor? Not clear. Okay, now the Ramah says something which I think will also make it clear, but also should properly terrify you. He says, right, how far does Kibbutz Ava aim go? Now, he has Gemara basics for this, but we're not going to go back to the Gemara text. We're just going to understand the way he does. Uh, how far does Kibbutz Ava aim go? Even if your parent takes a purse of gold and throws it into the seat in front of you, your purse of gold, you cannot curse them, you cannot yell at them, you can't be angry at them. The only thing he doesn't say you can't do is sue them. And halakhically, we put, right, that's how we paskin, right? You can't yell at them, you can't scream at them, but you can sue them. Because, right, the, the, because screaming at them is a function of the social relationship, and suing them is a function of the financial relationship. And the expenses of, uh, of kibbutz aim are borne by the parents. So if kibbutz aim means that you lose a gold purse, okay, you lose a gold purse, they have to pay. You should sue them respectfully. Um... Okay, we'll see. A Sefer Chassidim has, has difficulty with this, uh, right? Where he has a case where the son is, everyone says, sue, and he says, how can I sue my father, right? So that, that will, we'll have to deal with that kind of realistic uh, um, impression. But now he says, right? Now he says, why? Ela yikabel That's what the Torah said you have to do, so you just do it. That's a really interesting claim, right? You know, we expect there are all sorts of reasons you could say, right? You might expect from many popular presentations around them at this point to say, because you owe them your life, because they are partners with God in your creation. He doesn't say that. He just says, that's what the Torah told you to do. And he goes on. And he says, right, right how far does Morago? Morago's even if, right, this is where it gets very scary, even if you're wearing precious garments and you're standing in front of the community and your father and your mother come and they tear your clothes off and they whack you on the head and they spit in your face, you're not, not, not allowed to curse them back. You can't humiliate them. Rather, yishtok, you should, right, you should be silent, v'yira, and be in terror, v'yipached, mimelech malchei amlachim shetzivahu b'kach. Think about God. So, there are two things. One is Ram, you know, says you let them get away with it, although again, I'm going to be careful. Let them get away with it in the moment, because there's nothing constructive you can do by expressing your emotions. But you might be able to get them locked up afterwards for assault. And I think you have to be very careful about how far it is. And he says, look, this seems really quite horrible, but it's okay, because God said you have to do that. He says, look, if a flesh and blood king had decreed something even worse, well, you wouldn't have the right to object. So if God decreed you have to do this, you have to do this. There's nothing about your parents at all. Right? For the Rama, it's just that parents stand, stand at the heart of a social order, and therefore, and God wants this social order, so God tells you to do this. There's no relationship at all. Right, that's my contention, right? That, that, that you know, that, that it's, and it's a, a dangerous thing that we teach the Ram often as the face of because that's where he's coming from. And he thinks that maintaining social order in the family is an essential part of maintaining order in society. And therefore, you have to allow the formal roles to go on. And, and, but I think that he leaves, he leaves out, for example, the simplest thing will be, because we're not going to cover this in the, um, in the other shirim, the Ramah thinks that if you have elderly parents who are, right, who are mentally un, unstable and therefore abuse you, you can hire someone. The Ravid says, what? You can hire someone? Who's really going to take care of them if you're going to hire someone? And the Ramah says, you're going to, have to, right, you're, you're going to have to manhandle them physically, and that's not appropriate. To take care of them, because the Ramam thinks that the whole goal is that, they, right, is that their social position be maintained, and that can be done. When you realize that the Ramam thinks that can be done in many cases by anybody, you can move away and hire and hire and hire your parents' valets. And as long as it doesn't diminish your parents' social condition to have valets instead of you, who cares? 
maybe you can hire him at their expense because it's Hilcha, right? Because it's, it's Meshalav. Just if your parents say, you're like, I need a valet, you, right? Right, you can, right, you can, right, you can, um, right, you can, you, right, you have an obligation to hire them. Interesting question, which comes up in later literature. What if honoring your parents takes away your time from work? Can you bill them? Also, also a fair question. I say this is, you know, one where um, I saw my mother take care of my grandfather um, to the, you know, to a point which was utterly incompatible with her work. So I, you know, I have a very personal relationship that way. She didn't bill my grandfather. My mother was working for a major law firm and would um, you know, take her lunch break to come uptown and cook and cook and cook lunch for my father, and then come right and, and put and put dinner on the stove, and then come back after work, uh, you know, then go work for another five hours. Uh, you know, so I, I got to see it, you know, and eventually that's really hard to do to be working for a you know, for a major law firm which is demanding two hundred billable hours a week, and also cook right, cook lunch and dinner for your father every day, and eat it with him. So I, I have, I'm no gay, right? I don't think that that's 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 really the right outcome. Um, that's not what I saw in my family. Uh, on the other hand, I live in right, I live in uh, in Sharon, and my father lives in Washington Heights, so I don't do that, right? So that's a whole uh, whole challenge. Um, okay, um, that's the Rambam, right? And I'm yeah, and I think that uh, I think it has to be clear that's what the Rambam says. And when you learn the Rambam, you have to write. I think that there's a very clear interpretational framework, right, that all those things in the Gemara, the Rambam understands as being formal and not substantive. And in fact, it's hard for anyone to understand it substantively because we, Paskin, all the expenses come, all the expenses come from, and now we have a really interesting challenge because this is my father. Hold on one second. You forgive me? But this is not... I promise I didn't rig that. I promise I didn't rig that. Um, whoops. Anyways. Um, all right. Uh, you can judge for yourself whether I handled that right or not. Um, uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, but we should be aware that the Rambam is not the only vision of Hilchot Kibbutz Aim, right? All the things that you were probably taught earlier, even though they taught you the halacha out of the Rambam, right? They probably pull, they, they pulled everything else out of other out of other books um, for a good reason, as you can see. Because this this wouldn't go over so well with people who read the Rambam, I think, um, straight. Although it's worth thinking about, right? All the things I put on page one about, you know, you know, where the way, what are, what is the extent to which it's true that having certain kinds of functional families. Are essential for society, and to what extent do you think that we in modernity are capable of sustaining a healthy society when we have completely eliminated those, those roles, or do you think we haven't? We've just redefined them, right, or take it or assign different people. So here is the Sefer Charidim. This is a um, 16th century 16th century work in Sfat uh, Kabbalistics. He quotes the Zohar, so I'm going to just quote the Zohar through him, so you can figure out for yourself what you want the date to be. Um, the um, the Zohar in Parsha Kitetse says that the mitzvah is for a person to strive regarding their father and mother to love them more than himself. Not just the Reacha Kamocha, but to love your parents more than you. Uh, and the whole world should be considered as nothing except to do with it the will of his father and mother. Right? So the Sefer Charedim, quoting the Zohar, defines the mitzvah as love and as opposed to Aaron Kranz, more love. Right? There's a special love for parents. You have to love parents more than yourself. And then explicitly connects that to obedience. And then he, re- he defines that, right? He defines that obedience and says, look, because all of, um, right, all of Hilchot Kibbut Ava'im is rooted in gratitude for your existence. And since it's rooted in gratitude for your existence, right, what you are is somebody repaying a debt. And it's, you can't repay it. So the only way you can repay the debt is to love your parents um, and obey your parents, right? Um, right? And that's and you'll see that he he tends to um, to move the obligations towards a more substantive, uh, more substantive um, thing, and he's right. You have to give it generously, uh, but he goes back to in the last line that within this obligation is that you must love them with a powerful love. And when he defines his, the mitzvah of Yirah, he says, 
fear and tremble, mila avor al ritzonam. Right, rather than transgress, rather than transgress their, uh, rather than transgress their will. Okay, so here you have a totally different vision. Uh, right, it's interesting that obedience follows from love, and obedience doesn't follow from fear. Um, but a completely different vision of kibbutzabe. Also challenging, right? What happens if um, if you don't love your parents? What do you do now? Right, if you if you have reasons, you know, that you think your parents you shouldn't be grateful to your parents. What do you do then? Uh, how far does the obedience go? Um, do we really want relationships to be rooted in that kind of uh, in that kind of fear? We have counter arguments. Um, Pirkei Rebeliezer points out, and I, you know, I can root this in other ways as well, from you know, reading it back in Bracious, actually, you're supposed to love your spouse more than your parents. So, okay, maybe you're supposed to love your spouse more than yourself also, in your, right? And so we have a hierarchy, right? First you love your, first, first you love your, first you love your, your spouse, then you love your parents, then you love yourself. Um, or it could be that we need to nuance this significantly and say that um, it's only a special kind of love. Maybe it depends on the stage of life and how many other obligations you have. Um, obedience, which we'll talk about next week, certainly has to be nuanced in terms of other obligations, right? Can, is, is obedience to your parents your primary obligation? What about obedience to God? What about responsibilities to others, which are not framed by obedience? What if you have values conflicts? But I just want to put out right here that, you know, that Hilchah Kibbutz Aim starts with, right, starts from two really radical places, and if I wanted to, you know, to, to frame it, you know, in, in stark terms, we could claim, look, there's the philosophic approach and the Kabbalistic approach, and we could put the Ramam and Zohar, uh, right, and, and Zohar as opposites. Um, I don't think you have to do that, but you could do that, right, but you could do that. Um, and I should put out, there's also a third approach, which is the, uh, which is the, the, the Sefer Achidach, which is not entirely about loving because they brought you into existence, but he also includes loving for uh, loving your parents for what they have done for you since, and gratitude for what they have done for you since. He doesn't assume that having brought you into the world right, creates this overpowering obligation such that nothing else is relevant. So the Sefer Chinuch allows for a much more nuanced um, approach in cases of um, cases where you think your parents are being abusive or absentee parents. Right. Maybe he gives much more significance to social parenthood. Right? The Sefer Charedim's argument seems to be rooted entirely in biological parenthood. And they have to figure out, like, you know, how much, right? You know, so there have been serious Shilas, right? Do people, children born from IVF, do they, right? Who, to whom do they owe Kibbutzabe aim? To the, right, to, the, to the donor of the genetic material? To the, right, to, the, to the other party in the relationship? Or to the lab technician? Right? The lab technician is really the one who brought them into being. So right, so right, so that, right. There are all, all sorts of ways in which, uh, right, in which aim have been massively complicated by by technological developments that we have not fully, uh, we have not fully internalized. Um, what I want to argue, and that's what I'll try to try to follow. Uh, right, cause, sorry, the same Rechinov says like everyone understands ingratitude is terrible. Good ingratitude is terrible, but that's not always a relationship. Yeah, I say often like you know, I first started thinking about these shallows for real. It also made me appreciate you know how lucky I was in my own my own life, when I got a Shaila from a student, which was my, um, my mother wants me to come home for Yom Tov, but my stepfather will be there and he is sexually abusive. Do I have to go home, right? Do I have to go home for Yom Tov? And so like sort of brought home to me, like what, you know, the, the extent to which the word, maybe it might even by, I think it wasn't stepfather, it was biological father, right? Biological father, right? So then we have all the, right, all the you know, obligation to mother, obligation to father, right? How, right, how is that framed, right? That was a, it was quite terrifying, Shaila, um, to receive when I was in my 20s. Um, the answer, I think, was clearly no, uh, right? Because it's because nefesh, right? To go in, right? To go deliberately into an abusive relationship and what it does. But, but that was how, you know, that was like somebody thought that was a real Shaila. Um, right? So that's how they had learned Hilchot Kibbutz Aim. And I don't know that you want to dismiss it out of hand. Um, so what I'm going to try to argue in the in the following two sessions is that we shouldn't choose. Right? Sometimes, right in yeshiva, you say, "Look, we have three intellectually incompatible frameworks, and so halacha, we have to pick one of them, 
And so we're going to pick the Rambam and we're going to say, okay, there's no emotion involved at all. There's no obedience involved at all. Just make sure you play the social role. And now we have to, and then we, and our task as halachis is to figure out in a highly informal society, what is the way in which children can play the proper formal role for their parents? And as we talked to some of the students, right, there are challenges about that all, you know, all through. Um, the easiest example is, right, is being koveya suda on things, right? Certain halachot depend on fixing your suda, right, and having your meal in a way which is just non-existent nowadays. We don't have formal meals that way, right? We would, right, so, large, so all sorts of halachot disappear unless you change the definition of kibbutz suda to match something that we have, which is a much less formal thing. So we'd have to rewrite Hilcho Kibbutz Ava'im to uh, either we'd have to try and be radically countercultural and say, we want children to behave towards parents in a way which will make them, which will make them fully conscious that they are countercultural. Uh, right, in all sorts of ways, you can't call your parents by your name, right? We resisted absolutely the attempt to call parents by name, call parents by name, right? You can't have full-scale arguments, right? You always have to frame it that way, right? We could try and impose all the halachot that, right, all the halachot that way, and maybe that's a value. Uh, or we can say, no, you know what, in our society, that's not how you express, right? That doesn't make your parents dignified, that just makes your parents weird. Right? It doesn't actually improve their social standing. Uh, right, so that's a right. That's a uh, that's a fair question as well, but I want to argue that the proper way to make it through here is not to choose among the models, but to choose which model to apply where, and when, uh, and that we should be we should be trying to build blended models and hybrid models of kibbutzim using these rationales as opposed to a single sharp model, and that raises challenges for Psak, because right, how do you make decisions when it's that. Uh, when it's that um, conceptually unclear. Um, and I'm going to, in order to do that, I am going to have to introduce distinctions in kinds of kibbutz aim and claim there are different kinds of obligations, and some of them are going to be rooted in Ramam type models, and some of them are going to be rooted in Sefer Haredim side models, and maybe some of them in Sefer Achinach, uh, which you have to decide if you think those, right, those distinctions among halachic kinds are, uh, are intellectually sustainable. I'm not the only one who's done it. Right? The two models I'll use, one is my own and one is Robert Willig's. Um, and you have to see if you, if you find that convincing, and then we'll try to apply it to the uh, specific context of values, values conflicts, and, um, and, um, and abuse, abuse and self-care. All right, other questions? All that, save all the questions for the next two weeks when we try and, when we try and deal with the Lamasa. Thank you very much for showing up and listening. Yeah.